my name's Sam. Uh, I'm uh, one of the Burley Fishers, uh, and I am very pleased to be welcoming you to this uh, second event in the main space of BF Day 21 today, um, which is New Fiction's hybrid writing. Uh, after the uh, event, there will be uh, book sales and signing in the crypt, so please do hang around, um, and we've got plenty more events happening for the rest of the day. At the beginning of each event, I just want to say thank you very much to um, St. Uh, Peter's Church and to the Devobar Association who are selling uh, cakes and tea downstairs to raise money for refugees. So if you're feeling thirsty or on a kind of sugar crash after this, do make sure to go and help the refugees by eating some sugary cakes. I am just going to introduce our chair for today, Nish Ramaya. Uh, Nisha Ramaya grew up in Glasgow and is currently based in London. Her collection, State of the Body Produced by Love, is published by Ignota Books. Recent poems and essays can be found in the contemporary journal, Spamzine, an audiographed festival of experimental music and sound art. Thank you very much, Anissa. Thank you. Um, and thanks, everyone, for coming. I'm, I'm going to begin with uh, I'll do some bios and just introduce you to our amazing panelists. And I'll just give you a sense of what we're going to be talking about and hearing and inviting you to contribute to um, later on in the session. So firstly, Mona Arshi it lives in West London. She worked as a human rights lawyer with the NGO Liberty for a decade. Mona regularly appears on BBC Radio 4. Her poetry has won the Forward Prize and has been published in the Sunday Times, The Guardian and The Times of India and most recently appeared on the London Underground. And we are extremely excited and privileged to be um, celebrating her new book, Somebody Loves You, before it is officially out. <laughs> so this is a sneak preview. Juliet Jakes is a writer and a filmmaker based in London. She's published three books, Rainer Heppenstall, A Critical Study, Trans, A Memoir, based on her transgender journey for The Guardian, and a collection of short stories, Variations, which we are going to be celebrating today. Her journalism, essays, and short fiction have appeared in the London Review of Books, Franta, Freeze, Sight and Sound, New York Times, Time Out, and many other publications. Her short films have screened in galleries and festivals worldwide. She also hosts Sweet 212 on Resonance 104.4 FM, and I highly recommend the recent uh, episode on poetry and politics, which looks at the arts in their social, cultural, political, and historical context, and teaches at the Royal College of Art and elsewhere. So welcome, Mona and Juliet. Um, I'm so glad to chair this discussion with you both about your brilliant new books, Variations and Somebody Loves You, to ask some questions about what new fictions and hybrid writing means to you and to hear you read. Um, and just to say, uh, before we get started, that it was such a pleasure to read your books. Um, it was really fascinating also to read them alongside each other and to kind of be struck that despite their very different subject matter and voicings, to notice sparks of convergence between storytelling and silence, remembering and erasure, historical continuity and formal experimentation. Um, and I'm gonna uh, open by asking you some questions about the, the very title of our panel, Hybrid Writing New Fictions. Um, then we're gonna have a little reading. Um, then I'll ask some more questions and then just to give you a little forewarning, I'm gonna ask open up the questions to you as well, and we'd love to hear your responses and your questions. So, yeah, to begin with, 
What do you make of uh, hybrid writing and new fictions? What does it mean to you? Um, what possibilities does it open up for, for your writing and, um, and possibly even for your kind of, um, uh, your imaginations and your, your political horizons? Um, and may I pass it to Juliet first? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, obviously, uh, new fictions, I, I feel, is a fairly easy term to define. So I'll concentrate on this, this concept of hybrid writing. Um, I've always been, because I work across a lot of different genres and always have done, and not all of them have been successful, but I've tried writing plays, poetry, screenplays, uh, and have actually written and published like film scripts, short stories, essays, journalism. I've got a couple of, like all good writers, got a couple of like failed novels on the hard drive somewhere as well. Um, and so I'm interested in sort of meeting points of all these genres. And, you know, writing from a trans perspective, uh, it took me quite a long time to discover trans writers, but, you know, obviously. Um, it's very hard to find trans characters that are well sketched and properly rounded in literature, and it's even harder to find trans writers until quite recently. Uh, so I was very interested in, you know, sort of how like being trans would affect the forms that I wrote with as well, and with uh, with variations. Um, there are eleven short stories that kind of tell the sort of potted history of trans and non-binary people in Britain from the Victorian period to the present. Uh, and, you know, the title variations obviously hints towards this kind of hybrid approach because um, every story is set in a different uh, time period. Um, every story pretty much is set in a different place. I mean, London comes up a lot, but there's also stories set in uh, Blackpool, which I'm going to read from. Norwich, Liverpool, Manchester, Belfast, Brighton, and so on. Um, but they also all have different forms. So, you know, one, one story is um, a chapter from an invented memoir, one of them's a film script, one of them's a set of blog posts, one of them's an oral history, a couple of them are sort of secret diaries or unpublished diaries, or um, one of them's an academic paper. And they're all sort of appropriate to the time period or give you a way of like looking back at a time period from from a, a more recent vantage point. Um, so yeah, this idea of hybridity was sort of baked into the text from the starting point of how do I write trans literature, I think. Um, Mona, I'll hand over to you. Thanks. Um, thank you so much for that introduction, and it's lovely to be on this panel with you, Juliet. Um, um, so yeah, I it's. It's an interesting kind of conceptual tool, hybridity. Um, and it's so weird because, you know, this is my third book. I've written two books of poetry. This is my third novel. And sometimes, um, you know, I, don't I haven't sort of interrogated consciously how I write. But when I apply, uh, maybe apply that lens of this tool, which is a kind of, I think, more a kind of curiosity tool, really, as to what writing can be, um, I see that probably the idea of the hybrid, which I think is really, I prefer sort of writing that is oozy. I kind of like this idea of ooze, oozement, ooziness, which is a, a word that Helen Vendler, a critic in, in the US, talks about. You know, use this idea of being able to sort of be quite slippery in the work. And I think 
when I was writing the two poetry books, I was interested in seeing, for example, writing as a poet, but also exploring the kind of parameters of a poem and where it might slip into prose and a prose poem. So prose poetry has always appeared in my, my work and I've been really fascinated by the prose poem. And then equally, the book Somebody Loves You is, I guess, a, Somebody Loves You is a book where I started writing as a poet um, and it has a poetic sensibility and it's full of lyricism, but actually it has these kind of big, it has a big narrative arc, it has progression and it has a, um, you know, a linearity that you might see in prose. So I'm kind of interested in those ideas because I sort of think that circularity is really part of what a poem is. Um, progression and linearity is more, you know, akin to a, a um, prose. And I quite like sort of the enmeshment and I, um, and I like that ooziness. I love that sort of feeling of being able to slip into both and... Um, I mean, Anne Carson talks about this. She's got this wonderful phrase, which is, um, if I remember, if prose is a house, then poetry is a person running quite quickly through it. You know, I quite like that. So there are sort of passages in Somebody Loves You that feels very much like it is, you're on a different terrain. And, and also, I think that I quite like not knowing where you are. I quite like putting the reader in this position where you're not sure if you are in, in the territory of prose or, or poetry. I quite like the, the reader having to do some of that work as well. So um, I guess that's, I, I like the fact that there is sort of an interrogation of what it, what it is that we're doing and not really understanding maybe where the destination is of our writing, which is kind of what you alluded to as well. Thank you both so much. That already opens up so many rich things for us to discuss. Um, but I'm going to ask now if you would like to read some, some passages from your books and uh, maybe to sort of demonstrate or present some of the, the ideas that you've just been talking about. Um, yeah, Julia, are you happy to go first? Yeah, so I'm going to read from, um, from the fourth story in the collection, which is called The Exhibition. Um, Basically, each of the texts in variations, each of the stories, has a, a brief introductory paragraph in italics, which sort of tells you the, uh, the obviously imagined provenance of the, the short story or the text that you're about to, to read. Um, so hopefully, if I read that first, that will give enough of a way into the story that I'm just going to read the first couple of pages, um, because it's, uh, yeah, okay. So, <clears throat> these letters, telegrams, and newspaper cuttings were recently given to the Blackpool History Project, which tells the story of the town's entertainment industry. They were previously held by Blackpool Central Library. It's almost certain that Julian Cooper collected them, but it's unknown who originally donated them or when, as Cooper had no direct descendants and the library kept no records. The report by Mass Observation the organization set up by Tom Harrison, Humphrey Jennings, and Charles Madge in 1937, using volunteer observers to record everyday life in the United Kingdom, has been reproduced from the archive at the University of Sussex and provides further insight into Cooper's story. The History Project is appealing for anyone with a copy of Cooper's memoir, long out of print, to come forward. So, 
11 Longacre, London, WC2, Thursday, the 2nd of February, 1939. Dear Mr. Cooper, I regret to inform you that after an investigation into the missing one pound and five shillings, as discussed with you and your colleagues last week, we have decided that we can no longer employ you as a chef at Hilton's. We have decided not to pursue the matter further, but ask that you not in, we ask that you do not contact anyone involved with the restaurant again. Yours sincerely, T.A. Hilton, proprietor, Hilton's Restaurant, WC2. Viscount Warner Cooper, Charlwood Villas, 3 Outward Lane, RH1. Laid off by Hilton's, stop. Unable to find any other source of income, stop. Will this depression ever end, stop. No vacancies even in military, stop. Desperate, please stop the silence. Your daughter needs you. Stop. J. Warner Cooper, 14 Three Colts Lane, London, E1. Have sought legal advice. Stop. Insist you stop. 14 Three Colts Lane, London, E1. Monday, the 10th of April, 1939. Dear Mr. Hayward, I heard about your House of Curiosities from a friend who visited Blackpool last summer, who was especially moved by the young hunger artist, so I'm writing to you with an unusual proposition, which I hope may be of interest. You may remember that I featured in the newspapers several years ago, after being charged with perjury and sent to Her Majesty's Prison for Women at Holloway for marrying my sweetheart, Martha, under my alias of Julian Cooper. Imprisoned, not to mention bankrupted, by our justice system, just for loving a woman enough to wed, and then disavowed by my family for good measure. As you might imagine, life ever since has been rather challenging. I am constantly accused of masquerade, and I was released by my most recent employer after a journalist trapped me down and exposed me to them. However, I believe I can turn this situation to something mutually advantageous. My sex has long been the object of fascination for tittle-tattles, simpletons, and the gutter press. Why not make a show of it? I propose, simply, that I spend two months living on Blackpool Beach on exhibition for your visitors, allowing them to witness the person behind the lurid headlines. Please let me know if this sounds viable. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Yours, Mr. Julian Cooper, Esquire. 14 Dean Road, Manchester, M20. Tuesday, 18th of April, 1939. Dear Mr. Cooper, thank you for your recent letter, which, I must admit, intrigued me. Do you have an act, or are you proposing some sort of peep show? An exhibition of your domestic life would be considerably more appealing if you were to be with your sweetheart. Would she be willing to participate? If so, we may be able to accommodate you both during our high season of July and August and could offer you a fee of 12 shillings per week for participating. If this suits, please let me know as soon as possible. Yours sincerely, Derek Hayward, Hayward's House of Curiosities. 14, Three Colts Lane, London, E1. Monday, the 24th of April, 1939. Dear Mr. Hayward, I'm delighted that my suggestion has piqued your interest. It cannot have been typical of the proposals usually submitted to you. I'm no longer with my sweetheart. 
My court case, in which she denied knowledge of my birth sex, broke us apart. But I have discussed your ideas with my current beau, Patricia. After a lengthy, and I must concede, fractious conversation, she has agreed to accompany me for the two-month period on the condition that she and I get an equal appearance fee, for which we would like to know if you could raise to 15 shillings in light of our ongoing financial predicament. Patricia and I have been courting for two years and have not yet had the opportunity to live together, so we'd be happy to do so, even under such unorthodox circumstances. I look forward to making firmer arrangements in due course. Yours sincerely, Mr. Julian Cooper, Esquire. 14 Dean Road, Manchester, M20, Thursday, the 27th of April, 1939. Dear Mr. Cooper, thank you for your letter. I am, of course, perfectly happy to pay the same appearance fee to you and Patricia, but I'm afraid that I cannot increase my offer of 12 shillings, especially as I also will be uh, providing you with bed and board. This is the same as I paid to my lion tamer before the tragic loss of his right arm, and to our famous starving brides and their newlywed husbands who fast for a month to raise money to buy their first houses. It is even the same as what I offered to the exiled Empress of Abyssinia to address the crowds. It's up to you. Yours, Derek Hayward, impresario, Hayward's House of Curiosities. Okay, I'll leave it there. Thanks so much. Um, I'm going to read from Somebody Loves You. I have to say, the book isn't actually out yet. It's out uh, this time next month, uh, 16th of November, and this is my first book event. So um, it's really exciting to read from it, also a bit nerve-wracking as well. <laughs> so um, I'm going to read three short extracts from the book, which are sort of a bit like vignettes. Um, you could call them prose poems. And with the theme of ooziness, I'm going to read the first chapter, which is called Eggs. Actually, before I read it, I should just, just tell you a little bit about the book. Um, the, the book has a protagonist, and her name is Ruby. Ruby is um, electively mute, so um, a lot of it is in her interior thinking. Um, and the sort of themes of the book are, I guess, melancholia, silence, um, motherhood, and um, uh, other things that the kind of book is concerned about are, are, are sort of girlhood, how to navigate the kind of small veins of girlhood in contemporary Britain. Eggs. A man is offering her a bowl. She peers inside the, and there is an egg nestled in light peat close to the surface. It is a small blue egg perfect and complete. She gently lifts it out of the bowl and places it in her mouth, and the egg, still warm, breaks onto her tongue, makes her wretch a little, but still she swallows it. She closes and reopens her eyes, and a blue bird escapes from her mouth, then another and another, until the room is filled with their iridescent turquoise feathers and clamor of yellow-black beaks. A few settle on her head, Others perch on her shoulders. But then, after a few minutes, and for no discernible reason, they quickly flit back inside, a hymn of bodies, returning as they enter back through her parted lips. Several fly into her, fly into her and penetrate her torso. And when the last bird has gone, she closes her mouth and leaves the room. 
and the second short chapter is called Foxes. Apparently there was, there was a fox that entered this arena <laughs> a few moments ago. Um, foxes. The day my sister tried to drag the baby fox into our house was the same day my mother had her first mental breakdown. In many ways, it was the perfect morning for a breakdown. The rain was spitting softly. The Parker's dog just wouldn't stop barking. It went on, emitting that terrible noise like it was a machine loaded with everlasting batteries. In the living room, I had just finished watching a long documentary about wild kangaroos. Upstairs, there was a doctor, the aunties, and my father, of course. And there was a toy, a miniature replica camera, camera that my sister was jealous of. And she kept prizing the camera for my fingers and pointing it at things she liked the look of and saying, see, I can click, I can click, till eventually I had to steal it away from her and hang the long leather strap around my neck. For days we had known about the foxes. They had come closer and closer to the house and had been chewing at the garden boots my mum had stored under the corrugated plastic shelter. I went into the kitchen and the side door was open and there was Rania crouching on the steps carrying a bundle, a blanket covering the body so that only its ears and eyes were visible. I heard the front door click open then slam shut. The fox yelped and slipped away and we didn't see my mother again for three whole months. And there's another section here called I Remember. After school, a park, pigeons, and a bench with metal scrolled arms. I am wearing a skirt, the bench slats digging into my legs. So instead, I am sitting on my hands, waiting for Rania, who's high on top of the new roundabout, a witch's hat, on the highest rung, her hair flung back. I remember a dog I was scared of and wanting to run, and my sister shouting, don't run, don't run, Ruby, from the top of her perch. But I took flight, I, I ran anyway, my school satchel bumping at my hip, thwack, thwack on the jointed bone, and the dog chasing and barking at my side, and Rania jumping off and landing on her knee, the patella shattering like a walnut, the sound of her scream, a high, pure scream of distilled pain, and the yellow dog's owner was at her side, the dog captured and tied to a stump, and Rania crying and grabbing me by the wrist. I told you not to run, Ruby, you silly girl, you stupid, dumb girl, Ruby. The wet feeling on the back of my thighs, I'd been bitten by the Alsatian, but had I been bitten, or had I passed water? Where was my mum? I didn't know. I remember my mother earlier in a blue tunic with white flowers, standing under a bright golden-haired tree, which I now know to be mimosa. I thought, her I thought I saw her flickering like a candle under the mimosa for a few seconds. She was there, I thought, and then she was gone. And finally, a little short prose poem about a character called Ina, who's dead but not really dead. Ina is dead. Ina had gone on to the other side. Ina was in a better place. Ina had gone to meet her maker and was resting forever. Ina had climbed the stairway to heaven and been delivered to God. She was in his hands. Ina had slipped away and been carried on the angel's wings to everlasting peace. Ina was playing the harp in the eternal light. 
Ina had departed and was no more. Ina had reached a negative outcome. Ina had passed on. Ina was a lonely passenger, overflowing her lustrous boundaries at the gates of Bloomfield Heaven. Ina was standing barefoot on the overburdened lanes of Calcutta and was hustling her way to the other side of the road. And who knows what's on the other side of the road? Maybe the ocean, maybe the forest with its collection of roosting tree sparrows waiting for Ina, their cryptic mouths wide open. Uh, thank you both so much. Um, I, I thought maybe for the, the, the next question I might ask about, about the sort of nuts and bolts of this, this hybrid writing and, and ask you some questions about the, both the origin stories of these projects and, and also um, about the process of writing, about um, structure and, um, and sort of how these, I guess, how these sort of uh, very ambitious and complex projects kind of unfolded. Um, and I might just share a few thoughts and then and then pass over to you. So, I I mean, one thing I was really struck by was how both of your books, in many ways, kind of reject straightforward narrative or a sense of unity um, through their experiments with short story, with um, formal variations, um, with fragmentation and prose poetry. But they also, to me, what I was reading felt so strung together, like that there was something very subtle and beautiful holding, holding together the, the different parts and different aspects and elements of your books. Um, and I'd, I'd really love to hear more about that. And, and I suppose so specifically, um, Mona, there was a, you've already alluded to there being a sort of something similar in how you started writing this to how you start writing poetry. And I'm curious about how you approached not plot in a conventional way, but sort of plotting. Um, and because there were times where I felt that the, the, the coordinates were like emotions or sensations or, or symbols, like those oozy motifs. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about, yeah, about the, the, that kind of process of composition. Um, and, and Juliet, I, I really am fascinated in the relationship between um, the kind of archival research and the sort of fabulation and fiction and um, and authorship and and like w how if you could talk a little bit about that whatever happened between like a sort of shining scrap in the archive and then these kind of amazing different pieces that you've you've created and if well uh, yeah I, I and and I guess also that that how you strung things together because I was so conscious while reading that there were these continuities, not happy coincidences, but repetitions of violence, like the, the struggle to pay rent or to access healthcare or to, 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 to access employment or the ability to travel or be mobile. Um, and they kind of run throughout different times and places. And um, yeah, so I was just wondering, uh, maybe I'll pass to Mona first, um, what you could tell us about origins, processes, and form. Thank you so much, that's such an interesting textured question. I'll do my best. <laughs> um, I guess just to say, um, I wanted to tell the story of Ruby. Ruby was, um, she came to me, um, and this, this voice came to me, and I sort of felt, I've just felt every day I committed myself to writing her, her voice. And, but you know, like, so I ended up with this kind of voice, 
um, in, collected in a notebook. But of course, the voice doesn't make a novel. Um, and then I wanted to think about, and obviously she's, there's very little dialogue because she's, you know, I've decided that she's not going to talk or she, she's not talking. So, I mean, everyone I spoke to, all, all my novelist friends kept saying, you're writing a debut novel and you're like, basically have tied your one hand behind your back by not, <laughs> not using dialogue. But actually, it was a real opportunity, I felt, to because I'm not suppressing her imagination. I'm, not I'm, I'm just suppressing her speech. So something really interesting happened to, to, the, to the narration of the story. And then I just really felt that I needed to tell, tell the story of what was happening to Ruby and you know, her mother's melancholia, her own dissolution, and her kind of fragmentary kind of identity, which is really fluid as well. Um, and how I was going to do that, the most truthful way of doing that was actually not in a linear way, because actually trauma memory is not like that. There's a really wonderful line. Um, I'm actually going to read it from the Louise Gluck poem, which was sort of one of the animating things for the book, which is um, from the poem Nostos, and it's the last line from her poem, which is, we look at things once in childhood, the rest is memory. And I kind of feel that I wanted to make sure that I was truthful to to her, to Ruby's constant returning to those memories of her mother and the trauma. And the way to do that was actually to think about a different form. And the form for me, and that was the hardest thing to do for the book because as, as I said, a collection of, 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 uh, of narration in, a, in a, uh, you know, a notebook is not the novel. So I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And so that therefore I kind of, I keep circling back to memory. And the way that happens is those prose poems that are sort of punctuating the, the narration. I also sort of wanted to resist this kind of very tidy kind of clasp that clo it closes often with, with novels. I wanted to resist that. And I wanted to just do something that was uh, sort of truthful, really, um, to the experience of, of the voice. interesting Mona thank you um, so just to sort of pick up on your your question there were sort of two two parts to it really and one was about just sort of the genesis of, of this variations project and then the next one was about kind of archival material um, so I think it'd be interesting to sort of lead from one to the other I mean variations um, really actually it took a very long time to move from just being an idea I had to the book that you have in front of you. In fact, it took about 18 years. Um, as, as a sort of teenager and as an undergraduate, I was reading a lot of um, queer fiction, like occasionally kind of like queer modernist women, like Gertrude Stein or Virginia Woolf, but mostly like men like Jean Cocteau and uh, William Burroughs and Jean Genet and of course Oscar Wilde, who comes up in, in variations. Um, and, you know, I really noticed that you know, they, these, these writers felt to me like they're opening up a space for a trans literature that at that point didn't really exist. Uh, so I just tried to write some myself. And I, I wrote a short story. I was really obsessed with uh, silent cinema um, as, as a student and um, was really obsessed with this uh, adaptation of Oscar Wilde's Salome made in 1922 uh, by a uh, American-Russian um, actor called Alan Asimova. It's a very, very queer production. Um, and I wrote this short story about a kind of young cross-dresser who decides to become a work of art 
and becomes a work of pop art by dressing up as Alan Asimov and then going to this celebrity night at this quite tawdry gay bar in Brighton. Um, and there's a kind of, you know, culture clash there. And it felt to me that was, you know, I, it was one of the first short stories I wrote and I really enjoyed the form. And it just, you know, I showed it to a few friends who loved it and it felt like it was opening up some possibilities. So then I sort of, over the next year, like gradually came to this idea of a collection of short stories that would sort of showcase the diversity of sort of trans and I don't really have the term non-binary then, but kind of genderqueer identities. Uh, but I didn't really have the life experience or the writing experience to make the project work in the mid-2000s when I first tried it, but also didn't really have the kind of, quite have the theoretical or political infrastructure. Um, so I ended up you know, writing this memoir for the, uh, well, writing this column for The Guardian about my own identity and how I came to it and how I realized it. Um, and, you know, the sort of political, medical, social challenges around that. And then did this memoir. So it was only really in 2015, after I published that book, that I came back to variations. And I'd narrowed down this idea of short stories about trans people to short stories telling the history of trans people in Britain. And that made the project feel manageable. And then, of course, um, was doing it as a PhD, and that really opened up this idea of, um, of a fiction that kind of grew out of archives. Um, and I, I'd actually tried to write a non-fiction trans history of Britain, and I'd, I'd done a chapter on the sort of Victoria, the mid-Victorian period, uh, and so I'd looked into a lot of um, newspaper articles, uh, usually court reports from like the mid-nineteenth century about male-to-female cross-dressers, mostly in London, um, and there would be these sort of tropes that would come up in them. Uh, actually, the advent of uh, digitized newspaper archives was really helpful because you could you could see what wasn't in the archive much more easily. Uh, you know, you didn't have to go through loads of microfilm to find out that certain things hadn't been covered. You could, you know, look up a certain time period and think, oh, that story is not in the papers. That's interesting. But you could also find specific phrases, uh, and the phrase female attire was only ever applied to like male to female cross-dressers. So I did the search for a phrase female attire in the Times archive. Um, and uh, actually the Times was less transphobic 200 years ago than it is now. Um, but um, like, so was the Guardian. And um, found loads of these, these court reports and they had these certain kind of tropes that kept coming up that, you know, the, the cross-dresser when arrested would usually kind of say, oh, I was just doing it for a lark or a bet with my friend. The police would say, oh, I had no idea that this was a man dressed as a woman. Um, and then someone pointed out to me, and then I arrested them immediately, honest. Um, and then, you know, the judge would say, look, this is like a silly thing to have done, but there's no real law against it, so we're just going to fine you and let you go. So I kind of wrote the first short story, just trying to imagine the interiority of one of these characters who who went on one of these nights out, dressed as a woman, and then gets arrested, and how they would deal with it, but the, you know, just examining the risks that they're all taking. And lots of the stories had their, their genesis in that. I mean, the, the extract from the exhibition I just read is quite closely based on a, a real person called Colonel Victor Barker, who was um, arrested in prison for perjury in 1929 uh, for marrying a, a woman, uh, and Barker, you know, kind of dressed and lived as a man, but didn't do anything legally or medically to transition, which started to become possible in the interwar period. And I was, you know, just reading a biography of Victor Barker, and Barker and a woman 
did live on exhibition on Blackpool Beach in summer 1937. And this gets like one or two pages in the biography of Parker. I was like, that's a really interesting story. I want to explore that more. Because um, often it was just, yeah, like picking up these things from the very margins of queer history and being, okay, that would actually fit into quite an interesting narrative around either the medicalization of, of trans bodies or the kind of, you know, how they're positioned publicly or, you know, put on exhibition or treated by the media or treated by the legal establishment or whatever. Um, but, but yeah, you know, there were, there were lots of interesting archival processes there for sure. Amazing, thanks so much. Um, it just it made me think, yeah, it's like something about activating the margins and amplifying marginalized voices. Um, yeah, I've, um, I have many more questions actually, but and, and I'd, I, I would like to, to open up to the audience. If I think we have a roving mic, do we? Uh, oh, it's this one. Um, so, um, so I'm just gonna rove with this mic and uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have any questions or responses. I suppose I, I've got a question that kind of follows on from that one about, about archives, really, and specifically for, for you, Juliet, which is that I suppose I find it very interesting that you found these like gaps in the archives, and instead of filling them with a narrative, like, oh, Julian Cooper woke up that morning and blah, 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 you're like filling it with more archive, <laughs> like imagining what it would look like had it survived and what it would look like now. Um, and so I suppose I'd, I just wanted to know what the decision-making process was and, and what you think the like the ramifications of that as a method are. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, you know, obviously it makes it even more important that, you know, the reader understands and the book is kind of positioned as, as fiction. Um, I mean, I did, one of my favorite things I've ever written uh, was sort of um, a very short story I wrote in about 2008 uh, about uh, an experimental artist and filmmaker called Bastian Arda, made this um, wonderful film called I'm Too Sad to Tell You, which is just three minutes of him just crying on camera uh, with just that caption as the title. And I kind of imagined a second person who is never named, who is just kind of given the camera and basically interacts with Bastian Arda um, about why Arda has made this film and then deals with uh, what happens to Bastian Arda after. And, you know, I originally published it in the London magazine. It was very clearly marked as fiction. And then, you know, years later, I kind of, you know, had more of a reputation as a writer, put it online, and it wasn't always demarcated properly as fiction in the places it got published, and so people took it as like an archive. And people, like, wrote essays sort of, you know, saying this really adds to our knowledge of Bastian Arda. I was like, oh, shit, no, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't born when he disappeared. Um, it can't possibly be me. Um, so, so that, that was the problem with that kind of approach. Um, I mean, it, it did feel at times ethically contentious, I think, to be sort of, you know, writing fiction that nonetheless uses real people um, and, you know, sort of imagines conversations and feels like a bit of a historical document. Um, I mean, in most cases where I do that, um, the events I'm writing about are far enough in, into the past that it doesn't really feel like too big a problem. Uh, again, I mean, something I read that was quite instructive was uh, David Peace's novel, The Damned United, which is like a kind of fictionalization of the, the 45 days that Brian Clough, like, was given the Leeds United job for some reason, despite his very public hatred of them. Um, and, you know, this kind of impugns all sorts of 
motivations to Clough and to these like, Leeds United players, uh, one of whom like sued David Pease um, because you know this guy called Johnny Giles felt like there wasn't sort of sufficient fictionalization that people might you know impugn things about his character. So David Pease had to kind of publish the second edition of the novel that took all the references to to Johnny Giles out. So I kind of had that in mind when I was writing um, as well. Um, I mean, you know, this is, but, you know, Variations is presented consequently very, very much as like an imagined archive. Um, and I hope it's read in, in that spirit. Um, it, it was a concern that people might take it, you know, I mean, it's historical, but it's historical fiction. That's really, really important, I think. Um, and I've tried to kind of structure the engagement with the archive in a way that makes sure that doesn't get lost. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You are so good. Thank you.